Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with award-winning writer Kim Wright, author of The Longest Day of the Year, set in a single day on the Carolina coast with a wonderful cast of characters. The Longest Day of the Year explores the longing and regrets of four very different women whose lives converge around their love for this one particular beach. Sounds sweet, doesn't it? But don't be fooled. The twist ending will drive you back to the book for a second reading. Love, after all, is full of surprises. Mary Alice Monroe, New York Times bestselling author of A Low Country Wedding, says of the book that the twists and turns kept me captivated from start to finish. An RT book review says, a perfect pick to add to your summer to-be-read list. Wright creates memorable stories with interesting and unique backdrops that feature three-dimensional characters on a self-discovery path that reels readers in. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we're doing this on a rainy day. It's raining down there. It's raining up here, and uh, but we're going to get through it. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah, I read this book, Kim. Um, where I should read the book uh, on the beach. I did it in September, uh, uh, and it was a one day affair. You know, I had some beers there with me while I did it, but uh, under an umbrella. But it was a great spot to read this book, and and I'm just curious. Uh, what made you want to write a story where the beach was so integral to uh, not just the characters, but everything else that was going on in this book? 
I mean, first of all, I love the beach. I pretty much grew up there. My uh, parents had a condo. I went down every summer. Um, when I was like in college, I worked summers there, uh, waiting tables at a seafood restaurant. That was kind of um, an interesting introduction to beach life because you could lie on the beach all day long, go in about three or four o'clock and then go to the seafood restaurant. So I got a lot of, of uh, uh, you know, information about the seafood restaurant from having actually lifted those heavy trays. And let me tell you, they're heavy, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but you know, I mean, I had, I just grew up at the beach and the weird thing is the idea for this book totally came to me at the beach. Um, I think most writers would tell you that books come to them in different ways, that sometimes they come to you slowly, like in pieces, and sometimes you just, they just fall on you like full born out of the sky. And this was one of those. I literally took a walk to the Cherry Grove Pier, which is about a mile from, from where my condo is. And by the time I got back, I had the shape of the book in my head. I was going to ask you that because I, I wondered whether, you know, this uh, story to come to you while you're sitting in a beach chair, while you're walking on the beach, maybe while you're making, you know, maybe you're making some notes while the, the summer breeze is blowing in your hair. But, uh, you know, it sounds like the kind of story that would come to someone while they're walking on the beach, you know, because you've got so many characters in this book that we're going to talk about today that are very much tied and rooted to that you know, to that setting. And that, and that's what happens. I mean, the same people come down there year after year. Sometimes they, you know, will even rent the same week and you form these weird beach friendships. People sit, pull up a chair, people that I don't think, don't think would ever cross paths, you know, back in their hometowns end up talking to each other at the beach and you fall into these kind of casual conversations and that's what kind of gave me the idea. My mom has her beach buddies and they get together and they talk. They're hilarious, but they're so confessional. There's something about when you're at the beach, it's like it doesn't count. You wouldn't say this, you know, if you were home standing on the church steps like a good Southern woman. But at the beach, you know, all bets are off. You know, everybody sits back in their chair and tells you their life story. So I think that's where I got the idea of knowing how the beach both brings people together that would ordinarily be together, but how it also, for something about that water, it's almost like it hypnotizes you. It just prompts confessions. And these four women are just going to start talking. Now you can see that as you're walking down the beach, you'll see these little clusters of women or men sitting together and they're talking and they're, they're drinking and they're, you know, no telling where the stories are going. So, you know, when I, when I was in my beach chair and I, I opened the first couple of pages and I see, four women sitting in on the beach talking. I said, okay, this is going to be interesting. Uh, <laughs> but you got some good praise for the book. Uh, in addition to what I read at the outset, uh, uh, Don Tripp, author of, of Georgia, talks about how it's a gorgeous Southern novel that captures those twists in a life where comic blends to tragic and fate and luck collide. Uh, and then another author here says she didn't expect to fall apart while reading these pages or to bump up against so many familiar longings, but she did. And so I suppose that's the mark of a good book where you can relate to the characters and, and the characters we're going to talk about in just a minute. They're all just a little bit different. They've got some similarities to them. But from your perspective as, as, a, as an author and a reader, um, how important is that to be able to see some of your own life in some of the characters that are on the pages? Well, I mean, I always say that to some degree, all my books are autobiographical. That's a very classic thing that authors are asked is, you know, is this book autobiographical? And I think 
even if they're not literally autobiographical, even if I didn't have those experiences or live at that time, I think they're almost always emotionally autobiographical, if that makes sense. Like everybody, I always say none of my characters can say anything that I didn't think of first. They, you know, they all exist somewhere in my mind. So I, and I also, this is really strange. This is one of my strange quirks as a writer. I have a mystery series too that has a male protagonist and I think those might be my most autobiographical books in the sense I really feel free to put my own thoughts in a male character's head because you've got that little screen you're hiding behind a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the door to every story is through the characters. If you don't relate to the characters, you can have the most sensational events happen in the book. I mean, the plot can be crazy. But if you don't relate to the characters, what difference does it make? Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, let's talk about the book title and, and the book cover. The longest day of the year. Um, you know, sometimes I would say that days on the beach, uh, sitting in the chair, they go fast. <laughs> but this one, this one you titled The Longest Day of the Year. And probably because of, of some of the things maybe that these characters are dealing with, which are some of the themes, you know, we touch on the longings and the regrets. But uh, so how did you come to the title? Did you think about that while you're walking near the Cherry Grove Pier as well? Yeah, I mean, I actually did because, um, you know, June 20th or 21st, depending on the year, is literally the longest day of the year. So I had it happen on the summer solstice. And I have been for some time kind of moving gradually towards books that have a shorter and shorter time frame. Uh, the first two co- two books I wrote both cover nine months. And I just said, I'm a writer who writes books that last nine months. You know, it's the length of a school year. It's the length of a pregnancy. Nine months is enough to flip a cycle. That's a great length for a book. Um, And then I started finding myself telling stories that compressed and compressed the time frame more and more. And it just seems like, you know, when you compress a story, it's like compressing the the juice out of a fruit. You just concentrate it. Uh, It becomes more intense. It becomes. And this was kind of became a challenge to me. Can I tell the whole story in a single day? And yeah. so it was literally the longest day of the year and kind of figuratively the longest day of the year because all all the life stories were being told in one day. Yeah, well, the first book I wrote, I, I, it was about lawyers saving Christmas and I set it on you know Christmas Eve and put the entire courtroom drama in one day. So I know what you're talking about. The idea of compressing something also can drive up the tension a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was good, a good thing for this book. Um now, the book cover, which is going to be in the show notes, the listeners can find, uh, see it at uh, charlottereaderspodcast.com. Uh, stars out. Uh, looks like there's a couple of beach chairs. It, this looks to me like uh, late in the day after they've been on the beach all day long, and you just don't want to drag yourself off the beach because this is actually the perfect part of the day. It looks like about 7.30 or 8 in the evening and <laughs> you know, when the blazing sun has gone down and you just don't want to get up and go in. Is that what you're envisioning here? That was exactly what I was envisioning. And this was one time that my, my publisher worked with me to to do a cover that I really liked. And, you know, I, I don't know that all readers know this, but authors usually don't get to pick their covers. I've had a Mm -hmm. couple of times that the titles were changed on me. 
Um, you know, so I, you begin, it's a strange phenomenon, but when you sell your book, you sell your book in the sense that you no longer completely own it. I mean, you sell your book sort of like you sell your house and you can't go back, you know, six months later and say, why'd you rip out all my beautiful bushes and paint the door purple? You know what I mean? It's their house now. And books are a little bit that way too. You sort of lose control. So I was really thrilled with both the title and the cover, which did kind of exactly do what I wanted them to do. And one kind of funny thing is there's a twist, as you know, at the ending of this book. And um, people like to tell me uh, where the, when they figured it out, at what point in the story they figured out the, the secret or the twist. And I've had one lady swear to me on a stack of Bibles that she figured the whole thing out by looking at the cover. So that is, I don't know if she was telling the truth, but uh, that's a little challenge to anyone who gets to the book. If you can figure the whole thing out by looking at the cover, yay you. There are hints right. on the cover. I'll right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to call fake news on that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I sort of did too, but you know, hey. Yeah. Uh, well, let's do a quick overview of the, of the book and particularly the characters uh, before we have you do a little reading here. It's, uh, as you said, the summer solstice, small beach on the Carolina coast, four women, they're in conversation. They're in their beach chairs. Um, your teaser says that on the surface, they would seem to have little in common. Uh, let's talk about why for a minute. You got uh, Clio. She's a 22-year-old waitress at a nearby seafood shack. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Clio and what she's going through. Yeah, I mean, Clio is my young girl who just wants to come down to the beach. And she just wants to live at the beach. So she's willing to live in this completely dilapidated, you know, rental property that she's kind of found in the dunes and work at the seafood shack. And um, she's 22. Her, her decision is kind of between two boys, the son of the owner of the seafood shack, which is royalty by, you know, <laughs> beach standards. He's about as high as you dare aim. But her heart kind of really belongs to the guy who drives the produce truck that delivers the the salad stuff to the seafood restaurant every afternoon, Dupree. So she is kind of at 22, broke, kind of caught between two guys. She's kind of at that stage in her life. And um, she's willing to do anything it takes pretty much to be able to live at the beach. That's their spiritual home. She's from, they call her Clio because she's from Clio, South Carolina. I don't know if you've ever driven through it on your way to the beach. But it's it's a truly a, a one stoplight town, pretty pretty boarded up. But they've got it's always fascinated me when I've sat at that one stoplight and looked up. They've got this building called the Clio Opera House. So at one time, Clio must have had greater aspirations. I don't know what happened to it, but uh, but she's from Clio in my mind, which is the kind of place you would want to get out of if you were a twenty two year old girl. Yeah, and the other three women we're going to talk about here uh, they increase in age, um, but uh, and they all see. Clio as this uh, very beautiful young woman. They, they say she's pretty and everybody knows it. And she's got, as you say in the book, physical beauty right out of the gate. But then she says pretty isn't everything. And she's reflecting on her past growing up in a 10 unit trailer park where she's aspiring maybe to marry the, you know, the son of, <laughs> of the shack where she works versus the guy who's driving the truck. So she got her past. Then you've got uh, Amy, She's 36, the wife of an ambitious developer. Seems like she's got everything she needs, right? Tell us about Amy. Yeah, Amy is, is um, you know, what, what Clio wants to be, basically. She's uh, in one of the nice houses that overlook the dunes. She's literally looking down in the shack where, you know, Clio lives. 
And she's got the classic, you know, three kids, you know, the daughter and the twin boys and, and her husband's a real estate developer. Kind of her guilty little secret is that her husband and his buddies on the um, development board want to build high rises down on the point, which will totally change the beach and turn it from this sweet little family beach into sort of a, you know, she calls it at one point Kmart by the sea. It turns it into kind of this, you know, um, development. And it will literally block the view that they're looking at. They're looking at the view on the point while they're talking. And she's the one that knows that kind of the ambition of her husband and the money that's lifted her literally above them is getting ready to kind of wreck the beach for all of them. And, yeah. um, you know, so she's kind of got that kind of under her belt, that that her success has come at a price. Yeah, so she's got this uh, internal conflict going on. It seems like she's got everything she needs to the other women who are sitting there. Josie is 59. She's just off breast cancer surgery. Um, she's ignoring her children's advice uh, to come back home and see the doctor because she wants to be at this place, this beach, where she's the happiest. Can you fill in a little bit more about Josie? Yeah, I mean, Josie's kind of my midlife reinvent reinventing character. I mean, self-reinvention, which I think happens to a lot of us, um, you know, in our 50s, in our early 60s. I mean, that's, it certainly happened to me. And almost all of my characters, I'm like a sucker for midlife reinvention. So almost all my books have got a character who's about that age and who's kind of going through that. And she's had the shock of breast cancer the first time she's really been sick. So she's kind of like, well, what do I want? Well, the last place where she was really happy was that beach. So she's determined to go back and, and, and reinvent herself there. She thinks she can kind of find healing there. And uh, she had a grandmother like all of us that say, you know, if you soak anything in salt water long enough, it'll heal it. So she's kind of come back to test that theory. Can she heal her body and can she heal her life? So she's at 59, which I think is a really pivotal kind of tipping point. She's got a lot of life left to, left to live but she sort of outlived the life from the past. So she's kind of that, what, what I want the next section of my life to be uh, period in, you know, in time that I think so many people go through. And I, one of the reasons I like, you know, Landis to write about people that age is so many readers are that age. It's a really fluky thing, but um, a lot of the people that publish in New York that work in the publishing houses are in their twenties and thirties. And it's a real hard sell to get them to take a protagonist that's in their fifties or sixties. And I kind of want to go, you know, go on a book tour with me, go to one of these library groups or these book yeah. clubs. Who do you think are reading? Who do you think is propping up this whole industry? It's 60 yeah. year old women. So exactly. I think sometimes yeah. they like to see themselves on the page. Well, I'm all about that change. I, I'm the I'm the trial lawyer term podcaster. Maybe you can stick one of those in one of your books sometime, and uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll consult on the side there. But uh, finally, we got Cully. She's 81. She's a seascape artist of some renown. She's considered by, you know, the locals as kind of this eccentric, you know, she's the person you see on the beach all the time, no matter where you are, probably. Um, and she's choosing to live alone in this cottage that's just sort of falling apart. So tell us about Cully. She's the one that sort of jokes about her her health, too, uh, somewhat on the beach and how soon she's going to die. And the others kind of give her a hard time about that. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, Cully's the one. She she is in her 80s. She um paints this coast. So she's kind of in a, in a way 
you know, she, she, her stuff is shown in local galleries. She's got a little bit of local fame. And I think every beach has a collie, you know, I mean, every beach I've ever been to has got these women and they're out looking for shells and they've got their dogs and they're, you know, you can tell they, they just, you know, are a skin cancer nightmare. They've been out there baking for decades and they're walking around and, you know, and, and so Cully just doesn't care. Cully's just over it. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. The rest of them are somewhat concerned about pleasing somebody, you know, pleasing their kids or, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or being able to become the Joneses. Uh, Cully's past all that. She completely doesn't care. And um, she loves the beach in a different way. She looks at it, and every time she sees the same landscape, which she's been looking at for a long time, she sees something a little different in it every time. And that's why she keeps painting the same beach over and over again. And the interesting thing about this is all these different women um, seem to be wanting something that the other one has, and and they all have some sort of regrets, and it all kind of weaves together as we go on. So we're going to have a reading from Kim Wright uh, from the opening of the book, and then we're going to talk some more about the book. So, uh, And Kim, we, we're going to start at a good place. I, when I talk to authors about their readings, uh, sometimes they wonder, well, what should I read? What should I read? And I was like, well, what would you work on the most? Uh, well, maybe that opening. So let's start with the opening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's true. I think authors really worry about their openings and their closings. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to read the last three pages. <laughs> right. So, so here so, we go. Uh, okay. This is the longest day of the year. Dang, but it's hot. Any of y'all want a cold drink? It's the call of the beach. Four women are sitting on the sand, staring out at the ocean, which is coming in faster than expected. Every single one of them knows, girl to woman, that the Carolina tide can be a trickster. You pull your chair down to the edge of the surf, get yourself good and situated, and then, just when the shouts of the kids and the cries of the gulls have faded, and you're finally starting to relax into your book, here it comes. All that water, rushing at you out of nowhere coming to slap you out of the there and then and right back into the here and now. Come to remind you that no matter how many books she crams into a beach bag, no woman can escape the story of her own life, at least not for long. Not even here on Elliott Point, a sweet little stretch of sand that seems custom-built for escape. These four women know each other only in that unreal sort of summer friends way. They normally wouldn't even take the time to speculate on each other's lives. But heat and boredom tend to make people talk. Throughout the long day, as the sun rises and sinks, casual conversations give way to confessions. And since everyone knows that the whole world officially ends on Labor Day, summer friendships, like summer romances, are the safest kind. You can say whatever you want without that nagging small-town fear that your words will someday boomerang come back and to hurt you. This particular group ranges in age from 22 to 81. And if they didn't happen to be aligned shoulder to shoulder on this little spit of land, a passerby might assume they don't have much in common. The youngest one is just starting to rip open the box of life, while the oldest one is sealing hers up. And the two in between just keep moving stuff around, like you do when you're lost in the middle. But there's one thing that they all share, and that's how much they love it here. They love the way every day on Elliott Point is just like the day before, and how, once you cross the bridge from the mainland, and roll down the wind and the smell of the salt water, time ceases to matter. They love how beach life spins itself in circles, so that a woman staring out at the water can lose herself in fantasies of the future and memories of the past, and still be exactly here, perfectly here, 
only and forever here, all in the same breath. Anybody could call themselves a goddamn mystic, Josie thinks, just as long as they live at the beach. Using language like that is most emphatically not the way she was raised, but Josie's 59, and getting over the cliff of 60 is enough to give even a Christian woman a profane turn of mind. Josie doesn't speak this thought out loud, because she often cusses without meaning to, and who knows, maybe her words would offend the others. Hard to say. Clio claims to be a fully legal 22, old enough to pour drinks at a bar, but if you look her square in the face, she could pass for 14. And Amy's 37, which should make her game for anything, but that one's always struck Josie as sort of a prisspot, a snob, sitting up there in that obscenely big house of hers, literally looking down over the rest of them. Cully must be at least a thousand by now, give or take, but she can be a strange one. Sometimes Josie feels like Cully's tough as nails, and other times the old woman seems to be unraveling right before her eyes. But either way, Cully's definitely closest to the edge of the cliff, and Josie doesn't want the karma being the one to nudge her over the few, last few inches over, so she figures she needs to keep her goddamns to herself. <laughs> That's a great beginning, and I can see all the water rushing up at you out of nowhere. That's what happens. You're sitting on the beach for a while, and the tide comes in, and you got to scramble uh, and move back, move back, move back. Well, I've been lost in a book so much, you probably have too, that just all of a sudden, you know, like that rogue waves hit you, and you're just sitting with the book exactly. in your hands and you, your hip full square. Yeah. So um, one of the things you say about this book uh, in your promotion of it is that it's a Southern novel. And I actually found the section of the book that confirms that without a doubt. And it's the part in the book where one of the characters is talking to the other one and says, Mary won't even eat Dukes. She prefers Miracle Whip. <laughs> the age old battle of what kind of mayonnaise you're going to have? You can have Dukes from the South or you're going to bring in Miracle Whip from somewhere else, right? <laughs> well, her mother is just like so offended that her daughter prefers Miracle Whip. It's just like a, you know, a complete repudiation of everything she's raised her to be. Yeah. So a couple of things uh, before we get uh, into a few writing life questions. Uh, this book is about longings and regrets. Uh, there's some tragedy. There's this killer twist at the end. Um, but all the characters are searching for something. And I wondered, uh, you know, writers are often searching as well. I wonder if you were searching for anything uh, in your own life as you were writing this book about these four characters. Yeah, I mean, I, I really wa was. I, one of the big things that's going on in my life right now is my mom is aging to the point that she's got a, a kind of an adult onset leukemia that is, you know, winding her, her down. And I wrote this book for her. It's dedicated to her, but that's her beach, and she adores that beach. So I think I wrote this book to some degree to make peace with a woman who's lived her whole life at the beach, coming back at different points in her life. So I think it was sort of um, a love letter to my mom and kind of a, a tribute to her. And, um, you know, I, then I give it to her, and I'm like, I hope she likes it. <laughs> <laughs> she, right. she, she she's always of course read all my books and had opinions about them uh but she really did so i i think it was sort of a a way of acknowledging how the beach can kind of usher you into life and usher you out i mean one of my first memories as a child was going to the beach same for her and so i think that that beach being a constant in our lives just something we go back to and touch over and over again like a holiday or just something that you know, I know when I drive down there and I stop the car, 
usually before I even unpack it, I just walk out over the dune. I'm kind of like this, this huge exhale, just kind of this here. And so it was sort of an acknowledgement of that, our, our need to have continuity, to go back and touch the same place over and over again, even as we change. Uh, I think that's what I was kind of trying to make peace with myself. Yeah, my family was always uh, beach bound. My father lifeguarded at Riceville Beach in, in his um, in the forties. His his grandmother owned a hotel called the Landis in the thirties and forties, and we always went to this beach at Riceville, which we called our ancestral beach. But every time we loaded up the station wagon when I was young, my dad would sing this little tune: "Ha ho, ha ho." It's off to the beach we go. And it was and when you got to the drawbridge and you crossed in the waterway and that salt air hit you, it was sort of like magic. Yeah. Right? Magic. Yeah. yeah. All right, a little bit of writing life questions here. Um, this is not your first novel rodeo. Uh, Kim, you've written uh Love in Midair, The Unexpected Waltz, The Canterbury Sisters, Last Ride to Graceland, which I hadn't read yet, but I love the title so much. I gotta read that book, Last Ride to Graceland. Uh you're winner of the Willie Morris Award for Southern Fiction. You created this mystery series that you talked about, which has a number of books uh, in that. And so with, with all that in mind, uh, and I know you've already spoken about how your mother, this was for your mother, but uh, does this book somehow speak to you maybe in ways that some of your other books don't? Well, I mean, you know, they all kind of hold their own. You know, it's the classic, what's your favorite book is like, what's your favorite child? I mean, I think all writers would tell you that. It's a really hard question. Uh, this book, I'm I'm really glad to be honest with you, if it had to come out, I mean, a lot of the writers that I know that had books come out kind of in COVID year are like, oh my gosh, why did my book come out in the worst possible year? Because none of the ways that you normally promote books exist and you just sort of feel like you threw that book into the void. But I feel like in some ways, this book is the perfect book to come out during the COVID year because number one is kind of a little vacation in a between pages. It's kind of a little vacation you can pick up and take with you, I think. But I think it also is, is um, it's a book about reflection, which I think a lot of people have been doing this year. We've been kind of in for, you know forced to sit there and think a little bit um, and not run away from our lives quite as vigorously as we usually did. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a book that even though initially I was kind of like, wow, why am I trying to bring a book out now? I also think it's a book that's kind of perfect for the time in a way. But also, as we continue to learn how to promote ourselves as authors and how to promote our books, this has sort of made authors think harder, learn how to use Zoom, learn how to do podcasts like we're doing over, over the Internet, do, doing different things, which will come in handy later, right? I mean, you'll have this knowledge base when you put out your next book. Well, it's, it's expanding everything. It, it's the funniest thing in the world, because I don't think it'll surprise any of your listeners to know that writers aren't usually techies. So when they had to go to like a Zoom and all that, there was a lot of, you know, people running in the streets in circles screaming. I mean, people were not happy, like, oh, great, we're going to. But, you know, everybody's learned how to do it and has gradually gotten, I think, a little bit better. And I do a lot of teaching. And all the teaching moved online. And like one of the groups I teach with is Flatiron Writers Room in Asheville. And the two women that run it are, are so great about this. But they uh, were saying, you know, we were doing live uh, meetings in Asheville, live conferences and, and workshops, and people were coming in. Well, you know, Asheville's a great literary town, but Asheville's Asheville. It's only as big as it is. Now that they've got to gone to Zoom, I mean, all of a sudden, the last thing I did for them, there were people on there from all over the place, you know, a thousand miles away. So I think in a weird way, once we get over the hump, it's really changing 
how we communicate and how we promote. And while it's shutting some things down, it's opening other things up because I've, I've done conferences now that I've had people from Belgium and Australia, you know, in on the Zoom calls. That wouldn't have happened if I was just in my not, little Prius driving up and down the road. Not at all. Not at all. So that is a plus. And, uh, but as to this book, Kim, and we don't have time to do your whole writing process, but did, I, I'm just thinking, did you outline in your head in a beach chair? Do you make your notes, you know, while you're down at the beach? Were you writing any at the beach or did you still hunker down in your normal writing space uh, to write this book, even though you might have been thinking about it while you're at the beach? I took a lot of notes when I was down there. The challenge of this book, like any book that's got four point of view characters, was doing the slice and dice of the four different storylines. So I, what I did is I wrote each person individually. I wrote Clio's whole storyline. Then I wrote Amy's whole storyline. And then I literally just, you know, uh, did a, a cut of their scenes and interspersed them, uh, trying to keep in mind what time it was in the day because it starts about four o'clock and, and, you know, ends about midnight in a single day. It's really an eight hour span. So I kept tracking the four of them and weaving them back and forth. That frankly was the hardest thing to do. The four stories came to me pretty fast, but the, you know, weaving them together um, is always a challenge if you have multiple POV characters. And I had uh, the last couple of books I have have had multiple POV characters. I wondered how you did that because it weaved together seamlessly. It wasn't one of these kind of books where, you know, one chapter's named Clio and one chapter's named Josie. It wasn't that. You, you really kind of weaved it all together, which I found refreshing because I didn't, it didn't feel as jarring to me. You kind of, they all kind of stayed uh, with the flow there. All right. Just, I don't have time for much more before we finish here, but uh, since you've had so much experience, you've put so many novels out, Kim, what would you tell your younger writing self? that young Kim Wright, the writer, something helpful. Uh, if had she known it, uh, she might have been a better writer sooner based upon your your experience. Uh, I would definitely say it is begin to meet other writers, find your tribe earlier. Uh, like most writers, I wrote in isolation. And like most writers, I wrote several books that are, you know, under the bed and God willing will always stay <laughs> under the bed. They're pretty bad. Um, but I mean, I completely self-apprenticed and completely taught myself and didn't really begin to meet other writers until I had sold you know, my first book or was close to selling it and had an agent. And I wish in retrospect, I had joined the writing community much earlier. I wish I'd gone to New York the minute I got an agent. I wish I'd insisted on meeting every editor face to face. I wish I'd gotten in, I'd participated in the community of writing and the game of publishing much, much earlier. I think by the time people figure out they need to do that, a lot of times it's almost too late for them. So I wish I had jumped on that earlier and it's so much easier now. Uh, when I was coming along, I think there were like three MFA programs in the whole country. Well, now, if you want to find other writers, you can find other writers. And um, I got to tell you this one funny story. This maybe, um, The day I got my first really good review for my first book, and it was like early January, it's early in the morning, I, you know, just dark, dark, dark. I turned on the computer and I, Publishers Weekly had done a really good review. And that's one of the big reviewing houses um, for my first novel. And so my editor had sent it along and said, good news. Well, I just had this wave of like, oh, great. This is wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm launched. That's wonderful. Turned out, yeah, I'm glad I had that happy moment. Um, but I just went on a frenzy on Facebook of um, friending other writers. And I was ambitious. I was like, Tom Parada, Amy Tan, here I come. I sent friend requests to all these writers. 
And I'll be danged if almost all of them didn't friend me back. So all of a sudden, I have become Facebook friends with writers I had admired for years. And that was you know, before everybody was doing Twitter and you know Instagram and all this stuff that, that makes it even easier to follow anybody. And that was a game changer. But it, my book was already about to come out when I even did it. But it was such a game changer. Just hear what they were talking about. Hear what they were doing. You can learn so much just by sitting in the room, the virtual room with these writers and listening. I wish I'd done yeah. it earlier. That's very good advice because uh, being in community, you know, with, with like-minded people uh, is helpful because it can, uh, it can ease those wounds and also people can act as cheerleaders for each other and also help each other with their work. So that's great, great uh, advice to your younger self and to anyone that's listening. <laughs> so, hey, listeners, look, we got uh, this. That was a great segue because uh, we're going to be finishing up here. But uh, Kim and I are going to jump over to our Patreon platform, our listener-supported platform, and we're going to have a conversation because she is the story doctor. We're going to have a conversation about establishing a writing practice. It's uh, Kim Wright uh, talking about five tips uh, for your writing practice. So you can join us there. Just go to our website, charlotteruspodcast.com, look for the Patreon uh, page, and uh, you can see all of them, and you can listen to Kim and I talk about that, plus 30 or 40 others that are already up uh, for you to listen to. So, hey, Kim, thanks so much for being on Charlotte Rear's podcast. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.